1 Corinthians 1.10. Hopefully you have it memorized by now. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then, 1 Peter 3.8 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So we see there at the beginning of that verse, the phrase unity of mind, and back in 1 Corinthians 1.10, the same mind, different words kind of hitting at the same idea from a little bit different of a perspective, but the idea is that the people of God would be united, joined together in our, our thinking, and uh, we're answering the question, how do we go about doing that as a congregation? So let's ask the Lord to bless our time. One of the things that the Bible teaches and that we firmly believe here, and you, I've said this many times and you'll hear me say it many times in the future, we firmly believe that the salvation that has been achieved by God for His people is a salvation of the whole man. It encompasses all that we are. God sent His Son into the world in order that the world might be saved through Him. By His holy life, lived in the place of our sinful lives, and His death under the judgment of God for our sins, full atonement has been achieved. Full atonement to the extent that we even sing from time to time. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. It has been achieved. And through faith, we are reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Now, having been reconciled to God and engrafted into, into Christ like branches grafted into a vine, the life of the resurrected Christ now flows to us and in us and through us by the indwelling Holy Spirit, who we could refer to as the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of Jesus now dwells within us so that His life is given to us. We, we don't, when we talk about being saved, we don't merely get a new eternal destination. We get that, but we get more. We don't only have our sins forgiven. We do get that, but we get even more. And we aren't simply waiting for a transformation. We are waiting for a transformation. But we're not just waiting for one. We are experiencing one as His people even now because His life is flowing into us and through us and changing us and, and sanctifying us even now. For all who come under the power of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, there is an immediate, present, and ongoing work of transformation that begins with the inner man. That's what I want you to hear. It begins with the inner man. Now, our tendency is to see external religion, outward things, as the supreme sign of our own salvation. Those of you who struggle with assurance, what, what is the chief, the chief issue? Well, I believe that Christ did this, but I sin. Look, look at my life. I struggle here or there with, with some sort of external application. As if the promise of salvation is only to people who never sin again. God only has sinners to save. That, that shouldn't cause us to stutter. We have to look out of ourselves. But very often we think of that, that the supreme sign of salvation is the external. The opposite of that is that God actually begins with the internal religion, the, the religion of the heart and the mind, we could say. And that will then flow out in actions. I don't want to say we, we ignore the way we act. But, but that's not the, the, the pinnacle of, of God's salvation. You may have stopped certain sins in the past. The question is not, did you stop certain sins? The question is, why did you do that? Uh, you, you say, well, I, I didn't used to go to church, but now I do go to church. Well, but why? 
Why, why did you make that change? And when, you're, when you are worshiping with the saints, do you, do you enjoy it? Is, is there anything happening inside of you? Is this, is this a blessing to you? Or are you just sort of here? Uh, people can go through all of the external applications of what we would call religion with, with no internal heart change. The flip side of that is where there is the least little internal heart change, that will immediately begin to work itself out in other ways. But the way that that applies in, in, in and throughout our lives is going to be different. It's going to, be, it's going to vary. Our sanctification varies. The question is, was there a heart change in the inner man, in the thinking, in the heart? The salvation of God is a salvation of the whole man that begins in the heart. Now, with that in mind, remember that we're, we're, our topic is the practice of unity. How to actually go about obtaining and maintaining unity. Now last week we saw from 1 Peter 3.8 this phrase, uh, unity of mind, which Matthew Poole summarized as, as being of one mind in the things of the faith. And then John Gill explained, it requires us to turn our attention to the quote, one rule and standard of faith which is the sacred Scriptures. If we're going to obtain the, the broadest, most all-encompassing uh, application of unity as a congregation, well, that comes as we deal with particulars, as we bring specifics in our, in our thinking to the Word of God and we hammer them out on the, uh, on the anvil of the Word of God. Working on particulars requires every one of us to have our nose in our Bibles um, together, and by together I mean locally, like this, but also uh, mentally together, thinking in concert with the, the church historic, thinking in concert with the people that God has placed us with now. Christ, uh, when, when His body was raised, He began in that instant uh, not to institute something brand new as if there had never been a people of God, but a, 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 what we might call a, a new manifestation or application of the church, His people. And He has been building His church from that point, all the way up until now. We kind of joke sometimes that some people in our circles believe that the church history began with Billy Graham, right? That's typically the way folks in our area might tend to think. Um, but people in our corner often think the church began with the Reformation. Well, that's not true. God, Christ has been working in His church from, from the beginning and, and building a church. And we have to think in concert with this church that Christ said that He would guarantee His presence with until the end of the age. And the idea, obviously, is that we fill our minds with biblical content, doctrines, what does this teach, practice, practical things, how should I live. We fill our minds with that. And if we're all getting it from the same book, and we're all going to start sort of thinking and acting, at least in, in some particulars and in some way, uh, in unity. Now for many Christians, though the idea of delving into the Scriptures with specific, studious intent is a daunting task, some of you would say, that's, that's me, I'm, that's pretty daunting to me, but e even though that is the case, it often comes somewhat naturally... Because we recognize that we need to be taught or we want to be taught. We understand coming into the faith, there's a lot that I don't know and I need to, I need to know it. I need to understand it. And, and you'll very often hear testimonies that sound this way. I, as when I was converted, I immediately read through the whole Bible three times in two months. And the rest of us are like, really? You, but you hear that often. The people come and devour the Scriptures because... They're, they're, we're, they are drawn to that. And even those who might not have that experience are still sort of drawn to the idea that, well, I need to learn. I need to grow. There are things that I don't understand. Sometimes the, the, the preacher says things and I realize I've never even thought of that aspect of my life or my faith. We recognize that and there's a draw to that. On the other side, we, what we very don't, or we don't hear as often is a testimony like this. As, as, as a new Christian, I immediately began to pour out myself for others because of an overwhelming sense of love and appreciation and devotion that I had to them as my brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't hear that very often. 
That's usually something that comes as we learn and grow and the application of the truth is applied to us. It begins to manifest itself in this aspect of, of love and devotion to the saints. It's often a lot easier for us to devour the Word than it is to, to love one another. We're much more apt to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching than to the fellowship. Just like it's easier to, vote, to devote ourselves to the breaking of bread than it is to the prayers. There are aspects of Christianity that, we, that tend to be a little bit easier. We, we, we glide into them easier. And there are other aspects that, that really grate against the flesh. And one of those aspects that really grates against our flesh very often is just the application of love for the saints. Love for them. As we move through 1 Peter 3.8, and I'm using that as a summary of, of our, our duties to obtain and maintain unity, the, the second thing that's prescribed is sympathy. Sympathy, along with brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, all of these find their roots in the inner life of a Christian, what we would call the affections, specifically our affections toward one another. Study, study of the Word of God is often easy because our focus can sort of remain toward ourselves or even ourselves and God, our relationship with the Lord. It's, it's, it's very, it, it can be very tunneled, if you will, narrowed down to just us and the Lord very often angled more so to us than to Him. But turning our affections toward other people, that's not quite so easy. It's because we very often see things contrary to what God has ordained. In this list, in 1 Peter 3.8, there's one trait dealing with unity of mind, things of the faith, scriptural study, doctrine, application, practice. But then there are four traits dealing with our affections toward one another. We typically think of it the other way. My primary, this is our, our, our typical thinking, my primary and overarching concern is growth in knowledge and comprehension of scriptural truth and if I get time, then I might be able to love somebody besides myself. That's, this verse seems to be angled the other way, tilted the other way. It's similar with elders, the requirements for elders. There's one that deals with uh, capacity to teach and preach, and all of the rest of them deal with character. But we think the opposite. We typically judge a man by his ability to preach and teach. We ignore the character. Give us a few sermons. Was it good? Okay, let's... That's how we, we think the opposite of the way the Scriptures often present things. We, we think in terms of a lot of external applications or external duties and observances rather than the heart of the issue, the, the heart of a person, or our own hearts. And this is the same with unity in the church. Now, we are never under any circumstance to ignore or sidestep scriptural truth. But our devotion to truth, apart from affectionate hearts toward one another, will never produce the unity that's prescribed in the Bible because the unity that's prescribed encompasses both. And this is because for all of our intellectual attainments, God desires to have our hearts. And one of the ways that God gets our heart is when God's people have our heart. 1 John 4.20 He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. A true love for God will be manifested in love for God's people. Heart affections for the saints. A transformation of the inner man toward not only God, not only His Word, but also His people. The affections. Listen to, listen to this from, from John Owen on the affections. They are all we have to give or bestow. The only power of our souls whereby we may give away ourselves from ourselves and become another's. Other faculties of our souls, even the most noble of them, are suited to receive it unto our own advantage. By our affections, we can give away what we are and have. 
later, another quote. To whom we give them not, speaking of the affections, our heart, to whom we give them not, whatever we give, upon the matter we give nothing at all. And then again he says later, to do anything for others without animating affection is but a contempt of them. For we judge them really unworthy that we should do anything for them. He's saying the affection, the heart of the matter is the matter. And he actually goes on to apply that to our our contemplation of God. The heart is the, the thing. God wants the heart, the affections. But it also applies to everything that we do. When God saves, he... His work begins in the inner man by transforming the affections. And this is why, as we saw previously, love for the saints is a definitive staple of the new birth, not specific attainments in knowledge. Love for the saints. Now, with all that in mind we're able to see why, at least in 1 Peter 3.8, there's one trait that directs us toward intellectual or mental activity. It's not bad. We need it. We have to have it. But then there are four that deal with the heart work required for obtaining and maintaining unity. To put it bluntly, if you are not prepared for the heart work required in obtaining and maintaining unity, addressed in terms like sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind then at best, you're not prepared to pursue unity. And at worst, you're still in your sins because your heart hasn't been changed. Nothing could be worse. Say nothing. Maybe something could be worse. It's a figure of speech. Nothing could be worse than somebody in this room getting it in their heads that they're going to take everyone else in the church by the hand and lead them to see what they see in the Scripture and in a unified way if they have not first proven that the people of the church have your affections, your love. We've all heard the thing, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. There may be truth or error to that. I typically think it should just be nobody knows how much you care or how much you know, period. Just end it right there. Nobody knows, really. I mean, nobody cares, really, what you know. But... If, if there's no heart in it, it's not going to work. It won't work. And the first application of this, this application or, or this use and application of love is in this verse, the word sympathy. Have unity of mind, sympathy. If we are going to make the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony one of our primary and consistent labors as a church, then we have to all be seeking to obey the injunction to sympathy. We could put it this way. Have sympathy. God says, have sympathy. Or, be sympathetic. God says that. So you you would say, hopefully, I'm convinced that obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. What do I do? I would say, First, we need to have unity of mind, sticking our nose in our Bibles and learning and growing together. Secondly, strive to be sympathetic with one another. Strive to be sympathetic. Back to our church covenant. I've I've chopped it up again, but it says essentially, we engage to cultivate Christian sympathy. We've agreed to that. We've, We've vowed to that before the Lord. I will engage to cultivate Christian sympathy. And some of you remember we dealt with this, that particular phrase in the church covenant just barely over two years ago. I'm arguing that this is a biblical command that we must obey if we are to obtain and maintain unity as a church. It is a part of our covenantal vows that must be kept before God in order to having the unity which He desires for us. We could put it very simply, where there is no sympathy, there is no unity. We can all sound the alarm bells of truth and doctrine all we want, but if there's no sympathy, if there's that, that, not that fruit of Christian love, then all of the alarms will be received like a noisy gong or clanging cymbals. The, the men have talked about how 
a crying baby, there, there gets a point where some of the men, we, we just have to bow out. We, we, our wives, they can endure it. Some of the men, we say, if something doesn't happen, I'm going to go insane. It, it just, it, and, and, and the wife, you know, just keeps on doing what she's doing. Like it, it's not really an issue. The, the, the child, well, I'll get to it in a minute. Some of us men, we, we, there, there's just something that it's like nails on a chalkboard or whatever. It just, it, it's got to be fixed. We got to do something. Just tell, tell me what to do. I got to make it stop. That's, that's noisy gong clanging cymbals. Bong, 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 crash, 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 crash. And we get to, you just, you get to that point where you're saying, it's got to stop. I'm going to go out of my mind if it don't stop. That's what Paul says. It's like if we don't have love, it doesn't matter what else we do. If we don't have love, it's like that. Everybody's saying it's got to stop. That's, that's the point. Without sympathy, there's no unity. Going back to what Owen said, which I believe is biblical, whatever we might do, whether that be literal physical actions or verbal encouragement or reproof or teaching, apart from the affections, apart from giving the heart over in the matter, you've done nothing. And people can tell when you've given your heart over in the matter. We're not fools. We know when it's acting, when it's just, well, I'll just do this. I'm just doing the things that need to be done that I feel ought to be done. And whether someone actually has our heart and we have their heart, we know it. And if we don't, if they don't have our heart, then we've achieved nothing. God would say it's wood, hay, and stubble, all that we might do. We all need to cultivate the grace and virtue of Christian sympathy with one another. Now, I want to get into some of the details of this uh, by asking and answering five questions. Number one, what is sympathy? Number two, what will cultivating sympathy require of us? Number three, what does sympathy or how does sympathy affect our unity? Number four, what sins will keep you from cultivating sympathy? And number five, where do we see the clearest illustration of sympathy in Scripture? So number one, what is sympathy? What is sympathy? From this text, we have the word sympathy. Literally, sympathes. It comes almost completely unchanged over into English as Sympathy. S-Y-N means together. And then pathos means feeling. So the word sympathy means literally together feeling. So sympathy, in the application of it in, in real life, is to be moved inwardly along with or alongside of another. Your feeling together with their feeling, together feeling, sympathy. That which moves them, moves you. Or more specifically, their having been moved inwardly or emotionally moves you inwardly and emotionally in the same way. You're stirred when they're stirred. The word compassion is, is the same idea. Calm, together or with, and passion. We, we know God without passions, a passion is an affection, being, being moved by something outside of you. Or we, with people, we refer to them often as emotions. Compassion is to be moved in the inward part together with and by the feelings of someone else. What they feel, you feel. Compassion, sympathy, same idea. Now, we see this term used in places like Hebrews 10. Turn, turn with me to Hebrews 10, 33 and 34. Hebrews 10. I'll just read from 32 to 34. 34a. But recall the former days... When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Sometimes you got it. Sometimes you were just partners with those who got it. 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that your, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We have the word compassion. For you had compassion. 
The word for lets us know that that, that phrase, for you had compassion, is explaining what came right before that. You were partners with those so treated, for you had compassion. In other words, the hardship and struggle for some of these Jewish Christians was sometimes experienced when they would have compassion on people who were in prison. And therefore, they became partners with them in their public reproach and affliction. So maybe there were some who did not receive direct reproach and scorn and vile slander like some of their brothers and sisters had received. They weren't arrested and imprisoned like some of their brothers and sisters were arrested in prison. But rather than distance themselves from their contemptible brethren, they publicly made known the relationship. Oftentimes by bringing their own possessions to them in prison in order to take care of them while they were in prison. And what happens? Well, then the world would see that these people, though they're not imprisoned, they are partners with those who are imprisoned and they should also be slandered and scorned and mistreated because they're associating with them. That was the application of their compassion. They literally joined in the affliction of their brothers and sisters. I could get out of this so that I'm not slandered at all. I could just slowly step away and say, well, that's, that's all them. But no, they said, no, we're with them. What they get, we get. They joined them for they had compassion. Sympathy is the same reality although it's not only in that negative sense. A lot of times when we think of sympathy or compassion, we only think of the negative. Something bad has happened to somebody and we join them in that. It's actually both, whether for good or for bad. It's joining another in their feeling. Sympathy is so associating yourself with another person in heart and mind and love that their feelings in a sense, become your feelings, or at least stir your feelings. Various commentators offer these descriptions. I'll read these because I think it's helpful to hear it in many different ways. Definitions of sympathy. Affected with the condition of others as if it were your own. Interchange of fellow feeling. Community of feeling. Affected by like feelings. The state of mind that exists when we enter into the feelings of others as if they were our own. That's what sympathy is. That's what sympathy means. This is the sympathy that's required of us. We have to do the hard work of loving one another and being so taken up with the well-being of one another that the feelings of one become the feelings of all. When one is hurt, it is the hurt of all. When one is joyful, it is the joy of all. Notice, this is not just actions. It's not just, well, I did this. It's feeling. It's internal. It's real emotion, affection for one another. That's sympathy. Number two, what will cultivating sympathy require of us? What will it require of us? I think we're aware, just in hearing it described, that this is not something that just comes natural to most of us. At the very best, some of us might be more inclined to act for others. But then if you asked, if we were really honest, are you, do you really feel for them or are you just acting? Many times we'd have to say, I'm just acting because I know it's the right thing to do. It's not something that comes natural to us. Revulsion to it abounds in our hearts, even as we hear the definition of sympathy. We begin to make excuses for ourselves, or we condemn the feelings of others to remove our responsibility to feel with them. Well, they shouldn't feel that way, so I'm not going to join them in that feeling. Or we pretend ourselves to be champions of truth to the degree that feelings and affections really aren't that important. I'll be the truth guy, you be the feelings guy, and we'll all get along. But th th that's not what Scripture says. It's required of us all to be sympathetic. We very often think it's virtuous to say, well, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care how others feel. That's not virtue. That's, that's inhuman. So I think by the light of the Holy Spirit, we see our need. I, I need help in this area, but we also have the strength of the Holy Spirit and we can move in the direction of obedience by His help. What is required 
first and preeminent is the new birth. The new birth, regeneration. Remember that unity is the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony flowing from spiritual life. If there's no spiritual life, you can't do it. You can't do this. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is the start of all grace and virtue in us. Apart from regeneration, we cannot cultivate Christian sympathy. You might have sympathy for some other reason, maybe just general human concern for another human being, but that's not Christian sympathy. You must be born again if this is going to have any application to you at all. The second, and immediately flowing out of regeneration, the second requirement is love. The overarching grace of love will issue forth in sympathy. Galatians 5.22, The fruit of the Spirit is love. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. 1 John 2.10 Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If we love one another, God abides in us. 1 John 4.12 If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I've done nothing if I have not loved. And Christ Himself said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Sympathy will require us to love one another. Sympathy will also require us to recognize and affirm what the Bible teaches about our union as a church body. Our union as a church. 1 Corinthians 12, 24-26 says, God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And what's the point? The church is like that. It's like a human body. Had one in my house this week stepped on a nail. It wasn't just his foot that was affected. His whole body was limping and, limping and staggering around the house because his body is connected. And each of us is a body part, just like the parts of a human body. And what's the outcome of this union? The members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's sympathy, fellow feeling, an interchange of affections with one another. The illustration that, that I've used before is if you, if you trip, you, you stump your toe and you're about to fall and your head is going to hit something, your hands don't say, that's not me, that's the head. <laughs> I got out of that one fine. No, the, the hands go out to catch because there's this, this uh, created in us, this, this uh, uh, interaction between the body parts and the mind that causes that to happen. And Paul's saying the church is like that. We've covered that many times. And I wonder how many of you actually believe it or or feel it. Feel it. I'm not afraid to talk about our feelings. Feel this union. You see, if you don't believe that God has so composed the body, then you won't be motivated to cultivate Christian sympathy. Why, Why would you? Just pretend something is there that's not actually there. We're all just supposed to make this up. That that doesn't make any sense. If you think that you can get along just fine without the body or the body can get along just fine with you, then you won't cultivate sympathy. If you don't believe that there's an intrinsic, spiritual, God-created bond between the members of a church, you're definitely not going to be compelled to, to pretend something is there that isn't there, especially when it's difficult, when it's hard to do. We, so we have to recognize and affirm what God has said and what God has done. It is... Because God said it. Our failure to believe and feel and act on what God has said does not change the fact that God has so composed the body to work this way. So recognize that, affirm that, believe that. God has built the church to work this way. 
A fourth requirement, obedience to God's commands. Obedience. 1 Peter 3.8 comes with the force of a command. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, or being sympathetic to one another, being compassionate people. You and I are commanded to exercise the affectionate grace called sympathy. Now, a lot of times even Christians fall into the, the secular, psychological, worldly way of thinking that says, I can't control my affections. You know, the, 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 the I, I fell in love, I fell out of love, the, this, this just happens to me, all oh, my hormones, you know, only women get away with that one. But I can't, like we can't control this. The reason I say that is not to put down women, but if men acted on their hormones and then just said, well, it's, it's my hormones, we would be in a big mess. We'd have a lot of trouble, right? But we, we buy into that. I can't control my affections. Aren't affections just supposed to happen? Like just happen automatically? And if I pretend like I'm controlling or working, doesn't that make it not really affection? Well, the Bible doesn't give any credence to the notion that we who have been born of God's Spirit are slaves to the spontaneous, uncontrollable actions of our hearts. It's actually quite the opposite. We are commanded to rule our spirits and control ourselves and our affections. We need to teach our children that. Happy or sad, you don't get to just shout and scream every time you want to. Control that. I'm happy too. I'm not screaming. Right? Train them to be adults. Teach them these, these things. Teach them that they have to rule themselves. You say, well, they're, they're unregenerate. They can't do it. Well, then maybe that will force them to the feet of Christ to beg for help. But we have to do that as well. God commands you to be sympathetic. Romans 12, 15 is probably the clearest in all of Scripture here. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We are commanded to rejoice when others are rejoicing. We are commanded to weep when others are weeping. You say, I don't even know how to do that. Exactly. Cry out for the help of God the Holy Spirit to help you. We're commanded to bring ourselves into submission and to think and to love one another in such a way that we're sympathetic. When they rejoice, we rejoice. When they Weep, we weep. We're commanded to feel with others, whether positive or negative. And again, you can't do this without the Holy Spirit. And that's why regeneration is the first requirement. You must be born again. So you have to obey God's commands. Fifthly, cultivating sympathy will require us to prioritize our fellow church members in our thoughts. Prioritize our fellow church members in our thoughts. Philippians 2.3, maybe you've never used this verse this way. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Well, that word count means to reckon or to deem or to be of the opinion of something. Well, in its most basic implication, this assumes that we are going to be thinking and being of opinions which requires us to think about other people. you got to think about them. And here specifically, think about them in a way that actually elevates them above yourself. I esteem them more. I started by just thinking about them. But as I thought, I moved on to esteeming and being of this opinion of them. Sympathy is fellow feeling. And you cannot be sympathetic if you have no thoughts about your fellows. Right? That's, that's common sense. If they aren't in your mind, if they make up no part of your concerns, you can't be sympathetic. Now sometimes we say, well, I, I've just got so many other things going on. That's, that's true. Don't we all? Everybody's got something going on. God has not given you so much to think about that you cannot obey His commands. And if we're honest... Many times we fill up our lives with our own self-determined, self-centered busyness, things that God has not commanded, nor have they entered into His mind 
And yet we go about them and we not thinking of what, what is this going to do to my mind on down the road as I give myself to this, but we fill up our minds with things and we leave no room for the things God has commanded. I don't, I don't think we very often... I wish... I'm, I'm learning this. I'm trying to learn this, but I don't think we really often want to admit just how weak-minded we are. We, we, I can't handle very many things at once. I, if I get on one thing, that's going to be my thing. That's why I, t- I, I, I say in my house often, don't speak of any projects until a certain time. Because if it's in my mind, I'm done. I'm done for the day. Most of us are like that. But we, we don't think on down the road, two weeks, three weeks, six months down the road. If I give myself to this thing, it is probably going to consume me and I'm not going to be able to think about the things that God has actually commanded me to think about. And that doesn't mean that we're not ever going to have to balance. You're going to have to balance. There's no way that we can all just be one track, single, single. We're all going to have to balance. But don't use it as an excuse just because you made bad decisions. God's commanded us to be sympathetic. It requires you to prioritize what God prioritizes, which is His people. Think of them often. Think of their lives. Think of their families. Think of their background. Think of their history. Think of where they are spiritually. You ever just sit and just think about church members? There, maybe you know their parents, maybe you don't. Maybe you just say, well, I wonder what their parents are like. I remember when I was a younger man I would, and hang out with buddies, I would, it would always uh, be a strange thought to me that they have parents. Because I never met them. I just always met the buddy, you know. They have parents. I wonder what their parents are like. Some, some friends, I never met their parents. You ever think about stuff like that? Just their life. Who are they? We should be invested mentally in the people that make up the church. Very often we have these initial conversations, right? Somebody comes to church first or second time. Where you come from? Who's your parents? How'd you meet the Lord? You know, what are you reading? Whew, got that out of the way. And then for the rest of our lives together, we don't, we don't continue to probe and get to know one another. We've got to be thinking about one another. Again, you can't have fellow feeling with someone you don't know about or think about. The sixth thing is a, a, a willingness to listen. Sympathy requires you to close your mouth and listen to others. A lot of times we think that laboring for unity, we want it bad, but we think what that means is conquering the conversation. That if I talk enough, if I have enough confidence, if I have enough passion, I can force these people to uh, agree with me. That the way to a person's heart is through their, their busted eardrums. That, that, that usually doesn't work. Rarely, if ever, does that actually achieve harmony. To be sympathetic means... Oftentimes being quiet and listening and learning from one another. Proverbs 17.27 says, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. So we can try to picture a person who he's able to restrain his words, he's, he's composed, he's calm, he has a cool spirit. That person is going to be able to hear and understand and listen to what other people are saying. There's no way that you can enter into another's feelings if you don't know how they feel because you haven't listened. You haven't paid attention. A lot of this sounds like secular psychology, but if we're going to be sympathetic, we have to learn to think like human beings. There's no way you can bear one another's burdens if you don't know what their burdens are. You can't weep with those who weep if you're busy explaining to them why weeping is probably not the appropriate response in this particular situation. We've been talking about Job. Job's three friends waited seven days. They had this conversation. Elihu is there, seems like, the whole time. And he's just waiting. He's just waiting. He's just waiting. But he was able to respond appropriately. Going beyond the monergistic and supernatural work of God in regeneration... Cultivating sympathy is going to require work on our part by the power of the Holy Spirit. And and it will be the most flesh-withering work that we do because it's never going to result in even a little bit of self-glory, like like none. Just get rid of that. That's gone. You're not going to get it. It is the opposite of self-pleasing. So you must be born again. We must love one another. We we have to recognize what the Bible teaches about church union. We have to obey the commands, prioritize the people of God, and we have to be willing to listen and learn and, and be about them, give ourselves to them. Number three, 
How does sympathy affect unity? Our main theme is unity. We want to know how, how is all of that going to feed into our unity with one another. There are probably many different ways, but I'll, I'll try to give a few or some. Remember that the unity that we aim for is a pursuit. It's a process. In glory we will have uniformity, but oftentimes unity in this age is just going to culminate in harmony. It, it's, its highest peak will just be harmony. We're, we're getting along. Harmony assumes differences which are held and maintained with humility. Now, when we think about differences, we have to understand that that, that also works in different ways. Differences might be in conclusions. You believe A, I believe B. You practice A, I practice B. That, that's the conclusion. That's as far as we're going to get. And, and we're assuming here that biblically speaking, both A and B are acceptable. That's one way to differ. More often than not, the difference is going to be a matter of growth and maturity. You believe A, I'm not at A yet. You believe B, but they don't, they're not quite at B yet. They're not ready to consider B. And so there is a difference. Pursuing unity means, though we are not all at the same place in the same things, we can actually still coexist in the same congregation. We, ha- we harmonize together. We work together. So when it comes to sympathy and unity, cultivating sympathy will spur us on to seek the good of others, as we often do for ourselves. This is probably all just an, an unpacking of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If I'm sharing in the feelings and affections of others, then I'm going to take that into consideration when I'm with them, when I'm speaking with them, when I'm praying for them, I'm thinking about them and trying to think of what they might be thinking or feeling. Sympathy helps us to be patient. Sympathy will help us to be patient. Has God been patient with you? Has God waited tenderly upon you as a father with his child who's just barely learning to walk? We would all say, yeah. And hopefully we would all say, and I'm still there. He's he's still walking very tenderly, very patiently with me. Now, if you look back on your your Christian life, even your life prior to that as He's bringing you to Himself, but especially as a Christian, a father with his child, how does it make you feel that God has dealt that way with you? Hopefully, I think we would say, it makes me feel good. I don't think any of us would say, it's been kind of annoying. His hand is itchy and I wish He would just let me go. No, we don't want that. We have enjoyed it. It's a good thing. It makes you feel grateful that God has been that way. Think about other saints. Have other mature saints been patient with you? Can you look back on some immature and prideful things that you've said and done in the past in the presence of mature saints? And looking back, you're glad that they're not here right now because you're just so humiliated and embarrassed at the way you've acted, the things you've said, the things you've done. And you remember that Maybe they just smiled and encouraged you. Maybe they didn't jump all over you. They were patient. They waited. They, they knew this is how young people are. And they waited. I've, I've been there. Maybe you haven't. I've been there. I am so embarrassed. And social media is, is just you know, a filing cabinet to store away you know, and never forget your most embarrassing things you've ever said. I'm so embarrassed at the things that I've said and done in the presence of other saints. Mature men that I really looked up to and I thought, I say this and I'll do this, this will get them. And I look back and I think, that was so stupid. I was so silly. And what must they have thought of me? This kid, he doesn't know anything. He thinks he knows everything. I often think of how small I looked in the presence of others when I thought I looked so big. I thought I was so big, and yet I was so small. Well, I'm glad that they didn't determine at that point to leave me in my ignorance, but they were kind. Many of them did not draw attention to my immaturity. They gently, patiently helped me along because they understood. They had probably, I'm assuming, most older saints have been younger saints. They had been young people before. Now, if, you've, if, if any of that is, is a part of your experience... 
Do you not think that somebody else might be able to benefit from your patience, from your tenderness? Are you sympathetic to that position of immaturity and ignorance and need for growth? Well, that's going to help you deal with others. How would you like people to deal with you? Think the way that they would probably think. I fear that sometimes we might have this attitude. Yeah, I've been wrong in the past, but I was pretty much right. We can't be both. Well, I've been wrong, but at least I was dogmatic about it and I've got the enemies to prove it. Well, that's not good either. I think it would do us well, all of us, to get before God and realize how small we are. We're very small. We don't know much. I don't know much. Young men almost always believe that they are Elihu. Older and wiser men realize how often they have been Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz. God has been patient. Other saints have been patient. Sympathy will help us to be patient with one another where there are differences. Cultivating sympathy also helps us to calculate our response to one another. If, we're in, if there is a disagreement or if the, if, even if we're receiving a rebuke because we are in the wrong. Where there is disagreement... We should be able to be sympathetic with our brothers and sisters who are fully convinced that they are right because we have been fully convinced that we are right. I am fully convinced that I am right on things. If there's a disagreement, I have to remember at the moment of disagreement. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. What what do we want to do here? We want to preserve friendliness. We want to preserve love. We want to be sympathetic to one another. And that helps me think about and calculate my response. I can give a soft answer. I can speak with tenderness and compassion. I don't have a desire. We we should say this. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm not talking about myself. Speaking for us all. We should have this desire or no desire to hurt or to offend, or to to stand in in triumph, thumping our chest over our brothers and sisters because we finally proved them right, or proved them wrong, and we were right. Why Why do I think that way? Because I don't want anybody doing that to me. I wouldn't have any fun with that. It helps us to calculate our responses if I'm being rebuked because I'm wrong. And I have to remember, Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. This person is being a friend to me. Think, how awkward must this be for them? Their stomach must be in knots having to say this to me. Their stomach's probably been in knots for weeks having to say this to me. How do I know that? Because I've been there. I can be sympathetic. And I receive a rebuke the way God says I should receive it as a friend. I can sympathize. I respond in the way that I wish others would respond to me. You see, sympathy will utterly transform our interactions with one another. We can be serious. We can be diligent students of the Word with strong convictions and yet, believe it or not, also not be repulsive to one another. Sympathy fuels unity because we're concerned about one another and we we care about the feelings of each other. Fourth question, what sins will keep you from cultivating sympathy. We wouldn't even have to address this if we were not sinners. And even as brothers and sisters in a a covenant community like this, we still retain the residue of sin, which we have to guard against. So what are some of the sins that are going to push the hardest against cultivating sympathy? I have only three. The first one is selfishness. I think this is probably the most obvious, selfishness. We're most concerned about ourselves and our own pursuits and our own lives and thinking about others pulls me away from that, pulls me away from my hobby, which is me. James says in James 4.1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Why are you fighting? Because of your personal lusts. You want what you want, you want what you want, And therefore, you're at war. You're lust. You're selfish. We fight with one another rather than work to sympathize because we are full of our own lusts and passions. Sympathizing with somebody else is probably not going to advance your cause. 
sympathizing with somebody else is not going to gratify your lusts. But very often we say, I'm not a sympathizer. I want to be a leader. I don't want to walk in the back with the old, pregnant, nursing sheep. I want to be in the front and take the lead because we're selfish. We aren't willing to sympathize because we're selfish. The second one is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy specifically in the form of external religious activity. It's a lot easier to act, to perform some task or some duty than it is to just sit and cultivate a a sympathetic relationship with a brother or sister. If we just do outward stuff, if we just do physical things, we're not at risk of being uh, seen or viewed as vulnerable by other people. Especially men, we struggle with this. We don't want other men to ever get the impression that we might be concerned about them, really. But we, we should be okay with that. We should want our brothers to know, my heart is, it goes out to you. My heart is concerned. This, this and that thing, this is, this is troubling my soul. Now I'm not saying that we shouldn't do other physical, tangible things, but that's not the same thing as cultivating sympathy. And we have to be careful that we don't substitute one for the other. Hypocrisy. Outward acts when there's no inward affection. And then the last one is laziness. It's a lot easier to pretend to be unified or to pretend to be sympathetic than it is to actually give the time and effort and heart work of cultivating sympathy. And we just don't want to do it. We're lazy. We don't. Again, we've got our own lives to deal with. And I, I don't want to add that on my plate. Laziness. If we are to obtain and maintain unity by cultivating sympathy, then we have to start by confessing that we are and have sinned in this matter. We've sinned. We've not thought rightly. It's not going to do us any good to say, well, the, the, the sermon was good or the, the preaching, that one thing you said was this or that. Confess the sin before God. Agree with God that your heart is not right in the matter. Plead with His help to change your heart. But these are some of the sins that we'll have to be on guard against. And then lastly, the last question is, where do we see the clearest illustration of sympathy in Scripture? If we wanted to see what this looks like, we would need to look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Christ. Sometimes we, we think through matters like this and, and we say, look, enough of this gushy, lovey-dovey, emotional stuff. We want some type of hard-hitting gospel preaching. But all I've done for the last... I don't know, 30 minutes or so, has described the character of Christ Himself. Just told you what He was like. Now, I believe that there are some here, you probably hear these things, and, and, and as I studied this this week, I thought, man, I want to be this way. I've, I've told you, you all, I've been around some people, some men, that when I leave their presence, I say, man, I want to be like that. I want to be soft soft, where I need to be soft and tender and sympathetic like this. And some of you hear these things and you say, I I need to be like that. I want to be like that. Others of you, maybe you've heard all this and you're, you're just hoping that other people are listening so that they will be more sympathetic to you. Either way, we're, we're all in agreement. This is good. This is a good character trait. This is a good quality to have. And nowhere is it seen more fully displayed and more perfectly than in Christ Himself. There's never been one more sympathetic or more compassionate than Jesus Christ. Sympathy and compassion have never been seen in a more glorious and attractive form than when they adorned the man Christ Jesus in His earthly ministry. When we're around people that encourage us in their character... What, what, what could we think except if this is what a, a regular human being is like? Imagine what Christ is like. Imagine what it's like to be in His presence. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize 
with our weakness, weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. To put it positively, we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us because he took it upon himself to do it. He thought of us and considered our plight. From eternity he undertook to be our mediator, knowing that that would require him to enter fully into our room instead and stand as our substitute. Being very God and the eternal Son of the Father, He assumed the nature of men. He joined us in our state as a, as a man. He gave Himself to be our head and He took us to be His mystical body. He embraced this union. I will take the, those ones to be the members of my body. He took us to be His while we were His enemies and devoted Himself to walk with us in all of our infirmities. And even though our afflictions and the, the, the sin that we... or the, 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 uh, the turmoil that we walk through in the world is the effect, the product of our sin against Him, He became a partner with us in our afflictions. Our afflictions became His afflictions. All the sorrows and griefs of the human condition, He endured Himself and yet without sin. He loved us and He gave Himself up to death for us. He looked not only to His own interests, but to ours. He did not please Himself, but He lived and died to save us. And He promises never to leave us or forsake us, but, but He has remained, as we saw, encamped around us until our last breath, at which point He will bring us to be into His presence. He's done that for us. Now with eyes full of that Savior, we ought to be humiliated at the idea that we would ever even hesitate in the least to cultivate a sympathetic heart for our brothers and sisters. Look at yourself and think about who and what you are. Think about the way you think about people, the way you talk about people, the way you treat people, even in this congregation. We didn't have to go outside this congregation. Think about the conversations you've had about people here. Think about the things you've said in the, in the privacy of your own home, thoughts you've had about certain ones. Think about all of that. God knows every bit of it. Now look at Christ. Consider what He's done for you. One such as yourself... He entered into your stead. Those sins He took upon Himself and He paid the penalty for them. Now, what's, what's the response? The response is not, you're right, preacher, at lunch, I'm going to be real nice to everybody today. No, the response is to run to Christ. You and your actions at lunch or whenever are not the fountain that's been opened for cleansing. You're not the fountain. Run to Him. Go to Him. Confess the sin. Charge it to His account. Say, I need help here. I need the grace of the Holy Spirit. I have sinned. And there is forgiveness. Zechariah 13, 1, which says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Uh, Christ came into the world to save sinners. He is a, a fountain, a bottomless and unending fountain of cleansing and forgiveness. When we come to the Lord's table, we, we focus our attention upon His death. The human instrumentation of the death of the man Jesus was, was Roman soldiers. It was the, the rejection and spite of His Jewish kinsmen and it was Roman soldiers. But... In and behind all of that, as He hung on the cross, He endured God's wrath for sinners. He hung in our place. Because that has happened and the judgment has been meted out for our sins on the cross, meted out, judgment poured out, now the Father can turn to us and pardon our sins. Not as though He just sweeps them away like they didn't happen. No, He's judged them as if they did happen in Christ, in His body on the tree. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we're, we're reminded of that and we are remembering that. 
We're returning back to that fountain again and again. I'll read from Mark's Gospel. It says, As they were eating, He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is My body. And as we break the loaf again, we come again to remember Christ's body broken for us, life for us, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And He remains life. He remains bread. It's a bread that doesn't perish. It's a source that that never stops. Just keep coming back again and again and again for all eternity to live on Him who was crucified for us. Let me read to you again the warning that comes with the Lord's table. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper are not the fountain. They point to the fountain. Look beyond them, even if you're not coming to the table. You're not members, young ones. Think upon Christ. Close your eyes while the elements are passed and think about Christ dying for your sins. And then the rest of us will come to the table together.